Hello and welcome to Hell is for Hyphen. It's for September 2011. I am writer hyphen critic hyphen the Bazoor Project, a comedy show about movies on ABC2, 9pm Thursdays. Also available on iview. And with me as always is... Hi, I'm writer hyphen director hyphen I don't have a show on ABC and I'm feeling so alone right now. Paul Anthony Nelson. And our very special guest for this month is... Christos Cholkis. Uh, I guess I'm writer hyphen what else am i <laughs> i've got it underachiever underachiever <laughs> that, I'll, I'll settle for that no. i'm actually i do put on i've been really happy about this on the last two census forms writer slash vet nurse which right. i yeah i've been working um until quite recently that's, that's not a german wet nurse no <laughs> okay just checking <laughs> That's what you know, Kia no, would call the, a, a that's wetness. the other hyphen. That's the other right, <laughs> comes right. after the other hyphen. That no, but um, uh, for seven years working part time in a wow. in a vet clinic to to just uh, just support the writing really, and, and uh, until quite recently. So, and it, it was a terrific job. Yes, and and the the slap the adaptation of the the book is coming yeah. to ABC One on Thursday nights. Directly opposite Bazura. I Did had you know nothing. I know. Oh, I just found that yeah, out the other day. I had nothing to do with that. Well, I promise what you. we're going to whoever wins the podcast, that's the show that everyone has to watch who's listening. Okay. <laughs> that's, well, no, I don't so know keep score, works. folks. <laughs> Thank God for uh, iView. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, the funny thing about making a TV show about movies, as I was, is that the schedule was ho- so hectic. You don't have time to go and see movies. This is the first month where I have not seen anything that has come out this month. Wow. Not a thing. One film I saw this month was uh, 13 Assassins. Uh, it's a quaint little uh, pastoral picture of uh, medieval Japan from uh, one Takashi Mikae, who's famed for his quaint pastoral pictures. <laughs> um, no, it's, Amongst a, other it's a giant whack and samurai movie um, involving... Um, uh, 13 assassins taking on a horde of hundreds um, in a very famous siege. It's It tips the hat to Seven Samurai mm. in a, as you'd expect. I mean, how could you not? Uh, but I think while McKay has his flair for violent action and visual chaos, uh, I think he um, could take a leaf out of uh, Kurosawa's touch for character. Mm. Um the setup of this film is very kind of uh, rushed and perfunctory, and you've got you've you've got a film where most of the characters are dressed exactly the same way, have their exactly the same haircut, exactly the same look, and you're introduced to five of them at once. <laughs> that sounds a bit racist. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> and then the middle and the second act is very kind of laboured, and we kind of make our way to the battle, and it it gets a little tiresome. Thankfully, the battle is. Amazing. Um, it's but again, it's beautifully choreographed. There's again, it's lots of lots of chaos, lots of heat of battle footage. But it does feel a bit samey. It feels like we've been here before. We've been here time and again, and most of the time, it's been done better. Yeah. Um, I think for fans of, of Asian cinema and of samurai samurai story, I I I think it's. Very attra- a very attractive proposition, but don't expect to see anything new. Don't expect to see the wheel reinvented. 
Something else I saw at the film festival uh, yeah. was Submarine. Oh, now, yep. either of you seen this? No, no, no. Uh, now, this is uh, the directorial, the writing and direct. Oh, yeah, the directorial debut of one Richard Ayoade, who uh, is best known for playing Moss on the IT Crowd, and is also a bit of a comedy, comedy genius in his own way. It's a coming of age tale uh, about a young boy who meets his first love, and he's in high school. His parents' relationship is fracturing. There's something very true about the emotions being explored, and there's truth in there. Unfortunately, I think Ayoade is so keen to impress as a debut director and is so wearing his influences on his sleeve, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but the artifice kind of got in the way of the emotion for me. Look, I I think it's very entertaining. I think you can go to this film and have a lot of fun with it, but it just didn't resonate for me. Maybe if I was 10 years younger. Or older. Yeah. Or maybe, you just or maybe if you didn't know the influences. Mm. Or maybe if I'd never, ever seen a coming-of-age film. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and well, I that think that strikes at the heart of what I thought of Submarine. Now, you've seen Eye of the Storm. Yep. Christoph. How was that? I was really disappointed I missed that. Look, uh, I, I was disappointed and I was I was looking forward to it because um, I am a, a huge fan of Fred Skepsy. Uh, for me, uh, Devil's Playground and... Channel Jimmy Blacksmith are, mm. I think, two of the finest works of art ever created in this country. Not only film, just I think that they're, right. they're astonishing. And I've lo- I mean, I, I I love his work. I love Rock, uh, Roxanne. I love mm. kind of Six Degrees of Separation. I think he's he's such a, a talented director. This is the first Patrick White novel that's been uh, adapted mm. for for the screen, which really surprised me. I can't believe no one's done Voss, but that's <laughs> but and I, I know. There was a film, which I liked, a really odd film in the late 70s of uh, a short story, The Night of the Prowler. That's a really interesting, quite... The Night the, the Prowler. The Night the Prowler, that's right. Yes, yeah, The Night yes. the Prowler. It was sorry. Jim yeah, Sharman, uh, the director of Rocky Horror Picture. Yeah, Show. and yeah. It's, it's got some really strong elements of camp and almost exploitation elements in it. Mm. But um, if, if you can get it, and it, it's hiding out there in DVDs so, mm. somewhere. It's, it's okay. worth seeing. Yeah. The thing with The Eye of the Storm... Um, I, it's like all the elements are there. So you've got Fred Skepsy, you've got yeah. Judy Davis, you've got Jeffrey, Jeffrey Rush. Rush, who is actually quite... Uh, and so I think it's a really fine performance he gives. So all of the elements are there to make you think you're gonna, that it would be very satisfying. My biggest regret about that movie was that they kept it in period. The mm. novel was written in the early 70s, right. and it takes... And it's filmed in the 70s, and I think the period work doesn't... It doesn't convince. It felt... Um, like it was a very superficial un- kind of view of what the seventies would have looked like, because um, it wouldn't have been written as a period piece. No, it wasn't, and I actually I thought that it would be a much more interesting film if they had had actually made it contemporary. If they had made it um, about now, because a, a large part of what it is is the cultural cringe. So mm. these these people, um, Jeffrey Rush has gone over to the UK to be an actor because he doesn't believe that there was any, you know, staying in Australia wasn't mm. worth anything. Judy Davis, go, uh, the, her character goes off and marries some, you know, ridiculous third-rate uh, nobility um, uh, from France who haven't had a king for a century and a half. Mm. Um, and I thought it would have been quite an interesting film for everyone involved these are people who have spent a lot of time away from australia Mm. to talk about what to kind of see those ideas reflected now like how how do we you know what what have been the changes in australian culture 
um, how would you have written those characters in mm. 2010, 2011? Um, well, I think this still is a cultural cringe. Well, th- mm. exactly. I don't think that's something that's gone out of style necessarily. And I, 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 have you guys seen it? No. The, no. Well, the, as I said, uh, there's something about the, uh, the, the period elements of that film that didn't ring true. Um, and I think actually much more interesting things were happening in Australia at that time. Mm. And Fred Skipsy and everyone involved was probably part of those yeah. things. And yeah. so I would have liked, if, if you're going to keep it in that period, let's see a bit of a reflection mm. of that. You know, it's one of those films that I probably will go back to, um, just in the sense that, oh, just because I, uh, I admire the, uh, the, the, the people involved. Mm. I go, uh, you know, I, I go back to Skepsis' film and I may f- find in a few years that I've got a different reaction to it, but on a first viewing, it was, uh, it was disappointing. And as I said, I think it was something to do with not taking the risk of, of kind of really looking at the adaptation and going, we can throw away 1972, it doesn't have to be 1972, and, yeah. and film it now. And I think it would have been a much more interesting film. Mm. Mm. The other big Australian film of the month was Face to Face. Yes. Which uh, you caught. I did. I did indeed catch it. Wow, this is weird. I've seen the most movies on the podcast. This is bizarro world. Up is down, black is white. Yeah, Face to Face is director Michael Reimer, who uh, brought us uh, Angel Baby, um, Queen of the Damned, and um, <laughs> and then went to the US and gave us the uh, pilot to set the tone for Battlestar Galactica. Oh, really? Yes. He's come back to Australia to uh, write, produce, and direct therefore adapt uh, David Williamson's play of the same name and it's a lot of fun and has it's, it's kind of a throwback to, to Williamson's best work of things like Don's Party and so forth and, and touches on some very um, key issues of abuse in general but also this concept of we have to make fun of each other we have to give each other stick in order to get through the day and, and I think the film has a lot to say about modern workplaces and th- this kind of thing we're all kind of boxed into and made to take these jobs and do these menial tasks and and uh, a lot of us just aren't built for it and and uh, whereas some of us are and it's interesting because because the Luke Ford character is very much built for that like his job is his life it's what keeps him tethered to the outside world and what gives him a purpose mm. whereas other characters you sort of hint that maybe they'd rather be doing anything else than what they're doing um, so I think it's got a lot to say about that sort of thing. Um, performances are pretty much excellent. It's it's very funny. It's very raucous. It's very like it's very Dave Williamson. Um, Rhymer holds it together well. It I think he shot on a really low budget. Shot it fairly locally, um, and it's, it's nice to see. It's it's nice to see an Australian film that just invokes the better years of Australian cinema. I think. Okay. Um, yeah, I I think I think it wraps up a little too neatly at the end. It comes to this very kind of agreeable resolution could does that feel forced does it Paul a little bit a little bit yeah the, the new Hollywood fr- the 70s new Hollywood freaking me would like some loose ends um, <laughs> I saw somebody mention today uh, one of the they said that one of the best documentaries of the year is Project Nim would you how did you react to that I started sobbing from the first <laughs> two minutes um, wow. it's I don't think it's a great documentary um, okay, I, I think Part of the problem for me is because just these are my prejudices. Mm. I don't like uh, reenactments in, yeah. in documentary. I'm, yeah. a, I'm a very, I think, uh, you know, the, the documentary uh, cinema I love is the observational, um, uh, you know, it's Frederick Wiseman, yep. it's the Maisel Brothers. It's, it's, there were effects in the movie that kind of, you know, irritated me, but it is a great subject. Mm. Nim was a chimpanzee. 
that uh, a scientist in the uh, early 70s decided um, he wanted to see if uh, chimpanzees, um, uh, being the, uh, the closest species to, to humans, could be taught language. Yeah. And so the experiment was to uh, uh, teach him sign language. Basically, when the chimp becomes an inconvenience, uh, he's abandoned. When the scientist has got as much as he wants out of this study, um, the chimp is abandoned. And so it becomes, I think, a really affecting story of what we humans will do to another species. Mm. And it also is a really interesting film, I think, about exactly that, the narcissism of some of those politics of, uh, of the 70s. These are incredibly self-obsessed people, and mm. you feel like you want to... If you'd meet them, I would like to punch them, <laughs> every single one of them. Um, as I said, the, the, the documentary... You know, I wish it was better. Um, yeah. uh, that was that was one reaction I, I, I remember having when I walked out of the of, of the cinema. But as a as a, a study in human callousness, mm. it's 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 deeply affecting. Uh, yeah, it's good. It's, yeah. it's a guy who did um, sorry, Man on Wire, Man on, yeah, yeah, James so Marsh and oh, Wisconsin right. Death Trip, and yeah. yeah. So right. he's always. I mean, you know, he's again, he's a filmmaker that I'm I'm quite happy to see anything he does because I think his subjects are great yeah. in it for a documentary filmmaker. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. absolutely. That's, um, Can I just throw a quick shout out as well uh, to a film that is in its second week of its limited season in Melbourne at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image? It's a documentary called Fire in Babylon. I can't wait to see that. Yes. I cannot wait to uh, see that. About the rise of the West Indian cricket team in the late uh, late 60s, early 70s. It is a cracker. It was one of my favourite films of myth. It, it this is one of those you don't need to like or know anything about cricket. Absolutely not. Yeah. Because, it, because it nails... Well, one, it's full of magnetic personalities. Two, it nails the uh, political significance. And how it we how how the the West Indian cricketers were inspired by everything from the Black Power movement to the Rastafarian movement, and Viv Richards' own personal relationship with Bob Marley, um, and the uh, the very fact of cricket being a game that England introduced to countries that colonised, and mm. then this process that's happened over the last half century of every one of these countries beating their ass, <laughs> which is awesome. Um, it, it's a great. Fuck you to the uh, to the colonialists. Um, the film is is directed with a sense of power and and punchiness that's infectious, and it's just yeah, it's just glorious. It's so okay. good, and yeah. proves for once and for all that Viv Richards is the John Shaft of world. <laughs> <laughs> I can dig it. Well, the Australian uh, classification. Review board, which is, I believe, what they're called now, not the Office in Film of Film and Literature Classification, as they were until recently known as. All the new letterhead. Mm. About a month ago, um, classified the controversial uh, Serbian horror film, the Serbian film, as R18 plus after making significant cuts um, to the 99-minute original. Uh, it went out via accent DVD as a 96-minute version and uh, traded on shelves of video stores for about a month until some very vocal uh, minorities, uh, namely the uh, the Christian-backed um, female empowerment group um, Collective Shout, protested to um, to the government and basically uh, the, uh, the Australian Classification Review Board were pressured into banning it. Um, saying it's a refused classification, even though 
they given it a classification. Well, it was a different... It was actually it two different again. bodies. Mm. One classified it, and then the review board, which reviews the decisions afterwards. This is my understanding of how it works. That's no, nice. thanks. Yeah, no, that that's exactly what happens. Yep. That's yep. how it works. Yeah, so, right. it's, so, yeah, there are two different groups with different takes on things. Yeah. yeah. Which is a problem in itself. Um, and yes, now the film is banned, depriving um, adults of any chance they have of making their own decisions. I think you can see where I lay on this side of the debate. What do you guys think? Well, I was, uh, I was pretty outraged when it happened um, for many, many reasons. One is that I've seen a Serbian film and it's one of my favourites of the year, which shouldn't make a difference. And it doesn't. Like I, was, I hate Larry Clark films, so I was still protesting <laughs> Ken Park yeah. at the time. Uh, it, it's, it's the liberal in me who, you know, doesn't like things being banned. I may not like what you have to say, but I will defend to the hilt your right to say it. Exactly. Hmm. Um, always misattributed to Voltaire. I've gone from being outraged about the banning to kind of on the fence. Okay. There are... Raises eyebrow. Raises eyebrow, audibly. Um, I, uh, I'm finding it hard to get upset at a group that looked at a film, this is a very, very extreme film. I totally sympathise with them feeling that society would be worse with this film in it. I disagree with the decision, but I do have a lot of sympathy for it. Uh, so I've, I've softened a bit since my initial outrage. I'll come back to it later. Okay. Christos, where are you? Uh, I mean, I think censorship is a really, is a, is a much more complicated issue than, um, than the, the debates we usually see rehashed in the you know kind of in the the daily papers or I a couple of things come to mind and I, the first thing I should say is I haven't seen a Serbian film mm -hmm. so I'm not going to pretend that I can talk about that film in, in particular yeah. but I can broadly tell you what my position of se about censorship is and this comes from being a writer uh, so in the general category of artists and it is something I've thought about for a long, long time, and from that category, I stand in opposition to censorship. Mm -hmm. It's not... I, I don't think as a writer that I can condone censorship uh, of anyone's work, you know. That's, you know, Christos Cholkis, the man, mm. may have certain values and ethics, and there are films that I see that um, I think are foul or, I, you know, uh, I kind of oppose the ideology or the politics or the the sensibility behind it but my position is that I'm it's not my role to be censor mm. I mean I'm very very clear about that I haven't as I said seen a Serbian film but I'm someone who's followed the dissolution the you know and disintegration of the former Yugoslavia mm. really really closely from the beginning and I think from what I've heard and spoken to people who have seen the film, I mean, a Serbian film comes out of a context of a, of a, a culture and a country that went through, that got smashed, that yep. literally got Unimaginable smashed. Unimaginable hell. I mean, and yeah. I've read a lot of um, uh, Serbian, Croatian, um, uh, Montenegrin, uh, uh, Slovenian writing. Mm -hmm. And part of what that writing does is, is, is create a, a, a language of excess to kind of give voice to, yes. to what happened in, um, in Yugoslavia, particularly in the, in the 90s. And it still exists, you, know, mm. um, you know, Serbia hasn't come through yeah. um, those politics. So I would doubt that the, those groups opposing the Serbian film have 
pro- have made that analysis. I may be elitist there, or I no, I think but I you are dead on. I, <laughs> I think the re- the reason it's one of my favourite films is I read the director's statement before I saw the film. I went, oh, that's what it's about, and it that's why it blew me away. It wasn't the shock value; it was the meaning behind it. Exactly. It's yeah. I'm so glad you mentioned that, Christos. I I feel like a lot of people have written this film off as exploitative trash, and I, to me, it's like you need to understand the environment in which it's come out of. You need to understand the last decade, like what Serbia have been through in terms of their people being exploited by their dictatorship. It's the kind of thing that we in Australia can't relate to and hopefully will never be able to relate to on that scale. And I think the thing that impressed me about a Serbian film, and it's one of my favourites of the year too, Lee, um, I believe it has many points to make about living in that situation and about growing up in that situation and in that climate and I agree with some reviews that say it doesn't quite articulate the answers to those questions it raises that well but as we all know anger isn't always articulate and I think that that's key with this film I just Mm. think this film is just a, a document of rage and as much as collective shout believe they're doing something positive for the world mm. to me censorship means that this expression of anger at a horrible state is invalidated and that's just wrong it's like it's invalidating somebody's point of view yeah. and whether it's exploitation whether you don't like it and whether you know what don't and, watch it and also it, it may fail it may get it may be exploitative it may be misogynist it may that's mm. part of what happens if you create those kind of howls exactly I, I mean this is where I think it's the debate gets really confused and where it can get it's seem a bit dangerous is is that I think that mer- the merging of a feminist um, and sexual politics to questions of censorship really confuses me kind of because a lot of so you get very very uh, right wing or conservative critics or pro censorship people using the language of feminism and, and gender politics and sexual politics to, ju- to say this is the reason I, um, I object to this film. Mm. Um, and I think that there is a... T- you know, this is my personal opinion, is that there's a tendency now for us to, to really want to... Uh, this is generally in culture, to... We're just scared of sexuality. We're particularly scared of sexuality when it comes to young people. Mm-hmm. And we're really scared of films or works that try and mind that terrain as well try to think about it mm. and, and that concerns me I, I do a lot, of, a lot of people tend to believe that if you're depicting it you're endorsing it yeah that's I think that's behind a lot and of things anybody that thinks a single frame of a Serbian mm. film is endorsing the kind of violence that it depicts is insane like it's yeah. so I mean the character like you, you're seeing all these acts through the eyes of the lead character who's horrified by what's going on and who is forced to 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 interact in these situations and forced to deal out this kind of sexual violence you're and his revulsion at discovering it. Well, well yeah, you're not going to come out and go. Yeah, How I'd long like going to go do that? that? Yeah, yeah. Well, isn't the, I mean, isn't the devil's advocate question about censorship to ask? What if it was a film that was uh, reveling in that violence? That was. Re- would mm. you then think censoring is? Well, no, the line, the line I, has I, to be I personally wouldn't. 
You wouldn't? Because I still think it's an artistic I'm, point of view. I'm with Paul completely yeah. on that. I still think it's an artistic I, point of view. You shouldn't invalidate somebody's artistic point of view, however yeah. horrible that may be. I mean, look, and that's the thing. Morality is such a shifting ground. I mean, okay, if I, if I, were, to ban, if I were to be this person and ban things on morality, I would ban bad boys too. I would ban most romantic comedies. I, I think they subscribe to hostel. regress. I would be, yeah. 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 I think most romantic comedies these days hearken to regressive values that put like oh, every woman just wants to get married and wear nice clothes. You know, it's like, and, and, and but, yeah, but, but if there's a film like, coming out that I don't know, like, I mean, we all, we all have a line. I, I don't know what my line is because it hasn't been tested enough. But yet. my point a is so the line shouldn't, the line should be criminal acts. But is if the film had endorsed, let's say pedophilia. Mm. I mean, that's if it was coming out and it were almost a, a how to guide. I mean, that would be... Well, hopefully right-thinking people will see it and fucking just shun it. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah, like, but you like can't count on right-thinking people. Out, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But, well, but I mean, you can't think, think of... But that's the thing. But you can't also count on John Hinckley watching Taxi Driver and going, <laughs> he's exploiting that little girl, I'm going to kill Ronald Reagan. The trigger versus the cause, totally, but... Yeah. I mean, look, it is really complicated. I'm thinking of a racist film. You think of what the Nazis did, mm. kind of the, um, yes. uh, the 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 racist films they made about the Jews, kind of um, just before the um, the onset um, onset of World War Two and, and and during that early period. Like now, what if someone made that kind of film about any racial group? Um, I I would be out there protesting in front of the cinema, mm. maybe, but I wouldn't be arguing for censorship and I think that is a very difficult position and it's not one that I'm comfortable with yeah. I mean that's what I'm, I'm trying to say it's, an, yeah. it's because I think there are things that smack you in the face yeah. that, uh, that, that you do think are, are you know vile is the word that comes to but um, I don't think censorship is for me I just I, I'm, you know with the pedophile example I'm actually thinking of um, Van Peebles uh, Sweet's Badass uh, Sweet Sweet Sweetback's badass song. Yeah. Amazing opening. You know, a 12-year-old yeah. boy is given a... He's, he yeah. fucks and he's given a blowjob yeah. by a prostitute. Um, now, prostitute, would yeah. that be... Po- that's actually impossible to do th- these days. Yeah. I remember seeing that film and it's a, it's a, it's a great scene. It's a, you know, the... the, the uh, um, because, you know, for me, I remember, you know, my, my first sex as a young as a young boy was with an adult. You know, I just really wanted to get my rocks off. Mm-hmm. And it reminded me of that. But it's a very contentious scene now. Yeah. You know, kind of, you couldn't do it these sure. days. If a film was nakedly racist or, thing, I, like, I, like you, would actively tell people not to go see it. I mm. would, yeah, like, yeah, you'd pick at it. You'd, you'd, you know, shout from the, every social media clause to people should avoid this thing because it's poisonous and horrible. And you know what? It's the same, okay, it's the same thing we do with Talkback Radio. It's the same way I feel about Alan Jones. It's the same way I feel about... It's like, I think they're scumbags feeding on people's fear Mm. and destroying this country through kind of this perverse winning hearts and minds thing by stoking people's fear. And I wish they were sacked and I wish they didn't exist. But you know what? I wouldn't censor them. Because it's their point of view. And in the end, no matter how fucking deranged their point of view is, Mm. they have the right to express it. So, Christos, we're dying to know whom have you picked for your poll? Helen's for Hyphenates, filmmaker of the month. It's a, it's a thing we do. So. Yeah, yeah, that's all right. Um, I, I think coming out of the uh, censorship uh, discussion, uh, I think it's a very uh, apt choice. It's uh, Pasoletti, Pierpaolo Pasoletti, the uh, Italian filmmaker. Actually, 
filmmaker hyphen yeah poet uh, talk poet, about a hyphen, hyphen yes <laughs> <laughs> intellectual hyphen school teacher hyphen, i mean you know he yeah. had a a very very fascinating man radical um, political philosopher yeah he yeah he 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 died you know he was murdered uh in his mid 40s and it's uh Quite astonishing to think of uh, the body of work he left behind. Yeah, he only he was only active for fifteen years as a as a filmmaker, which is pretty astonishing to think of his um, his legacy and the amount of work that he did during that time. Yeah. So, so what what is it about him that that made you pick him? Uh, first two films of his I saw were Theorem and then mm-hmm. the um, uh, Gospel According to Saint Matthew. They're so clear; they're crystal clear. Um, my experience of uh, seeing those films for the first time, Theorem. I would have been on the cusp of adulthood, you know, I don't know, what, what I mean is somewhere between 17 and 19, you know, that's when I first saw it, and I had never quite seen a film like that before, mm. like I had never actually been asked to work so hard at a film, yeah. um, to not just sit back and uh, let myself be entertained or, you know, you know, let myself be frightened or, or whatever the, the sensation was, was actually to think. I also knew it was beautiful. Like, um, mm. The, 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 the uh, theorem's a very stunning-looking film. So mm. all these sensations were, were at play um, at seeing that film. And I thought, who, who is this guy? What, what, what is this about? What is he asking me to do with this film? What is he asking me to do with this story? And that that set off a, a search for, for a kind of cinema that, that, that's been very, very important to me and that's the cinema of thought, the cinema, intellectual cinema, the cinema of ideas. Mm. Um, so that, that's why, that's one reason Pasolini is really, really important to me. Now, I also said the gospel, which I, uh, because I started you know, seeking his work at, I think it was the Cinematheque, um, very yeah. soon it played a, there was a print of a gospel uh, according to St. Matthew. I'm someone who's had a very strange relationship with religion because uh, I grew up in the uh, Orthodox Christian faith, um, but that was almost, you know, it was just what you were. Then I had a period of fundamentalist Christianity and then became a very staunch atheist mm. uh, around uh, 15, 16. I mean, I was used to, as I think all of us were, like the, the Christian story being the greatest story ever told, or yeah. the King of Kings, or the Cecil B. DeMille mm. um, versions, that, uh, or Ben-Hur, or, or all those movies. And I thought The Gospel According to St. Matthew was, and I think it still is, the best telling, um, the most consistently faithful uh, telling of the Jesus story. That it came from uh, a Marxist radical homosexual Mm. is bizarre but um i love that i, I yeah. love that about it that you know he made something that's quite down the line quite straightforward it's uh it's very it's almost reverential well it is but but I, you know i also think it's because pasolini did have um i think for for all his life the question of faith was enormous and i don't think i th- i don't think uh, his communism or his marxism to, to be more specific, is uh, separate from the question of faith as well. Because I think to have that kind of committed politics, you have to have a certain faith. Right. And that that its roots are in religious expression. Um, I mean, there's a moment in... Uh, uh, this, You know, I was saying uh, that the memory of it is still so vivid. Is um, There's a moment where Herod has announced that all, all the uh, male children will be killed and uh, Joseph and Mary are going to 
you know, uh, on the, the donkey to Egypt. And you hear, um, sometimes I feel like a motherless child, one of the uh, the best spirituals ever written. Mm. And, uh, um, and it just drops on the soundtrack. And it's, you know, this is meant to be, you know, first century uh, um, Palestine, and you suddenly get, um, sometimes I feel like a motherless child. And I think, because I was, I just thought, oh, all right. This is actually much more faithful to the history, even though it's a contemporary song in it and mm. it made me th- it made me really think about what you could do with cinema mm. um and the and the supposed rules of cinema i think the other thing for me about pasolini is is someone who um and i've written about this before the kind of gauntlet of the challenge of his art which is to be uncompromising to never acquiesce to to the money gods or to the mm. power god uh, you know is actually a really important figure for me but I also think it's a really you know you can't really follow that road yeah. <laughs> you know that's that's so I, I have a very very confused relationship with Pasolini um, he makes me feel like a, he, he reveals my weaknesses really mm. and um, so uh, there's great love there and there's great antagonism as well right I've got to tell you this story about Salo I went in the uh, early 90s to Greece and I, I literally got off the plane, met my cousin Aleka, who I love. We, we've seen, you know, we, we rarely see each other, but um, I didn't get any sleep. We, we just hit the cigarettes and the coffee and just talked. And she was at uh, college at the time and she took me, um, she was meeting some friends. And as you did, as you do in, in Greece, we were around this round table in Athens and we were people were asking me questions about who do I like, what films do I like, what, what uh, writers do I like. And I talked about Pasolini. And this young man turned to me and said, what do you think of Salo? And I said, oh, I've, never, I've never seen it because it's banned in my country. And he, I still remember his face. It just, he, he's, he looked at me like I was an idiot. Yeah. And he went, you know, in Greek he went, what do you mean it's banned? It's, it's, it's a great work by a great director. I said, no, no, in Australia it's banned. And he got up and went to a kiosk and brought back a, a newspaper and it had played on Greek television the <laughs> night before I got into wow. Athens. Wow. Um, and so I think that, that for me was a very interesting moment of thinking, well, culture affects how you, how you view work. Mm. You know, mm. so... Um, well, it's not like Greece invented culture or anything. <laughs> <laughs> Let's be honest. <laughs> The other thing I would say too is that uh, I think that uh, some of my favourite moments in film have come from Pasolini. I, I, I love Anna Magnani, and I think probably the best, the the most wondrous performance Magnani has ever given is in Mama Roma, mm. and um, uh, and that film is I think a love poem to to an actor, and you know just the way the camera is on her face as she's walking the. Um, the Roman streets is uh, yeah oh, that amazing tracking shot yeah that's that, that yeah you know. that was that was amazing I mean he's well there's yeah. two of them they're yeah they're mirroring each other aren't they well, the I kind I kind yeah I mean those first two films you know Achitoni in sixty one and Mamma Roma in sixty two I never thought of him as a neo realist filmmaker but he absolutely came out of that 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 way of thinking and I kind of felt my my favorite of his films is Mamma Roma. Wow, uh, I've, I've seen nearly all of them, and that one, and I almost feel like I'm missing the point of Pasolini by liking that one the most, because <laughs> it's like it's his later career is what he's known for, really. 
But Mama Roma is just, I don't know, that was... Uh, uh, you know, Lee, I can, I can understand that because, it, you know, there, there, there's a difference. I mean, I, I love so much of his work, so... Uh, but there is a, a a relationship I have to Mama Roma and go- the gospel, mm. which is, is kind of... It feels pure. Mm. Like, that. They, they of all his films are the truly enjoyable ones for me. Um, and, and actually, Akatani too. Yeah, yeah. I do... Uh, um, and it makes me, it just, you know, makes me nostalgic for a time I did not exist in where, um, I was saying this to a friend the other day, where you, you know, these filmmakers, you know, you, you think about that period, that, and it was because it was the end, you know, it was um, after the atrocities of World War Two and kind of, you know, the, the, you know, the shattering of culture that happened in that, in that war in the United States, it was the end of the studio st- system. And you feel like that, the, you know, which gave... Which gave rise to to that seventies um, mm. filmmaking that you you know you know we all love I think mm. and I think it was just they were you know you could make films so quickly and so fast and you you, you look at the cinema that uh, Pasolini was doing and he was working as fast as his thoughts were going mm. yeah the the thing about his later films because my my background you got to remember is a writer and uh, so Oedipus and Medea you mm-hmm. know that uh, Canterbury Tales and particularly I think the Arabian Nights. Uh, um, and there's the decameron. He's he's very very consciously has chosen these key texts of uh, even Sodom. Is well, yeah, exactly. Yeah, mm. I'll, I'll I'll keep if if that's all right. I'll keep Solo to yeah. another yeah, yeah. because it, it, there's we'll end on that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but we'll close hard. <laughs> but he's obviously you know what he's doing is saying I am going to look at these foundation texts mm. of um, of Western culture, mm. and I'm going to strip them back from. And you remember, he is, he is a Marxist. He is yeah. a, a radical thinker. Mm. And I think he's going, well, how do you tell the Oedipus story? Mm. In the same way I think he was doing with the Gospel. How do you tell the Gospel story? How do you tell Medea as it was at that time, you know, mm. without the overlay of, you know, capitalism and bourgeois culture and what we, we think is proper filmmaking and what we think is... And I, I've gone back to Oedipus Rex and Medea um, and Arabian Nights, Andy Cameron, uh, over the last 20 years of my life. Um, and I didn't love them at the beginning. I found them very, very difficult. Mm. But I do love them now. And it's because I think he's, he's portraying the beginning of, um, of culture. And he's, he's getting to, I think, primal roots of, 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 of where Western culture where, where, where culture was, yeah. and I think that's quite a remarkable achievement. You know that that this isn't the um, epic theatre version of Oedipus Rex. Mm. You know this isn't the this isn't even like um, you know the HBO Rome version yeah. of Medea. This yeah. is something much more raw, mm. and I think actually much uh, and much obviously much more primal, but I also think uh, much more authentic. Yeah, I mean, it's very, very pure. Like, I mean, you look at the number of filmmakers who will take a classic text and basically say, look at what I'm going to do to it. Mm. But he seemed, he's trying to explore it. And the way he does that is by doing it as purely as possible, I think. Uh, and it's a real surprise for somebody with such an artistic signature to do something that is almost consciously stripping away that signature. Uh, it was not what I was expecting at all. Mm. What were you expecting? You, uh, I, I was expecting um, operatics. I think he had an aesthetic that that he remained very, very true to oh. to, to the end. You know, yeah. from you and know, from day one. 
you know, Akatoni is instantly where you know we're, we're we're dealing with pimps and prostitutes mm. and the, the underclass and and actors Rome. from the street. You know, yeah. you know, he he he, he uses um, Anna Magnani, he uses Maria Callas, he does use, um, you know, the the four uh, archetypes of you know the, in Salo are, are, are all uh, famous Italian actors, mm. uh, Laura Betty, um, but he remained consistent with using you know people he found off the streets mm. to give an authenticity to 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 the to the kind of film he wanted to make. Terence Stamp too, in theory, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. And Franco Chitti uses quite a bit as well, like mm. uh, the, from Makatani onwards. I feel like from Mama Roma, he works very deeply in metaphor. Like, it felt mm. to me like, I, I, I don't know, maybe it was because n- knowing what I do of Pasolini and his background as a, as a philosopher and a poet and as a radical um, political figure, um, just sort of kept me thinking, like, during Mama Roma, like, uh, like... On one hand, you've got this affecting story of a mother who's trying to raise her son the best he can and ends up destroying him through means of control. Mm. But on the other hand, it's this kind of, well, hang out with the rich kids because they're the kids you want to be and they represent capitalism and then in the end fascism by being horrible and making him do these horrible things. And um, and I, f- I feel like it's very pertinent that the film is called and that she is called Mama Roma because mm. I think she represents Rome, she represents Italy. In the way that it's like, whenever they try to try to move forward, they keep selling out to capitalist interests, to fascism. Uh, whether that's in, that, whether that's represented by Franco Chitti's pimp, who keeps, you know, wanting wanting her yeah, to go yeah, back yeah. to work so he can, you know, finance his own grand dreams. And yeah, I, I don't know if you guys felt the same way, but I just felt uh, felt a very. Well, I think that's really true for Mama. Rama. I mean, I think the Magnani character, like Mama Roma herself, you know. It's a tragic story, but part of the tragedy is because she wants these things. Yeah. She wants these yeah. trappings of capitalism. You know, she she wants this for her son. She wants this. She thinks this is the way out. This is the way out, yeah. and she gets destroyed by that. You know that. Um, but I think the contradiction for me in watching Mama Roma is that she is such a a life force. Yeah. That the you know that's the side of um, Pasolini that I wish he were alive to argue with you. Mm. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, do you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like. Well, look, look at you know, you know this this performance is all about pleasure. Mm. So can't you acknowledge some of that pleasure? <laughs> um, that doesn't. She's I mean, so earthy and wonderful. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and I, um, he was almost for a Catholic, you know, from someone from that background. He's there's a Puritan aspect to um, to Pasolini in his cinema, mm. and I find that contradiction really fascinating. Mm. Consid- um, considering how openly sexual a lot of his films are. Yeah, look, I, I mean, you know the the. I mean, you know, the trilogy of life, which is the uh, Decameron, Canterbury Tales, and um, Arabian, Arabian Nights. They're they're really sexy movies, mm. you know, mm. kind of. Um, but again, he was, you know, it's like he's saying, uh, "Let's go back to to before sex was tainted by money. Let's go to mm. before sex was yeah. tainted by capitalism. Let's go." Um, and it almost feels odd talking about it. We're so distant from those kind of politics now. But um, you know, I think. I, I do think Arabian Nights, for example, is magical in that way because it is a real expression of the innocence of of sexuality. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah. I couldn't agree more. It's uh, it's it's very innocent and sweet. And for a movie, you, you just don't see movies that are wall to wall about sex that are so innocent and sweet. 
the only other one really is Decameron, which is <laughs> so cheeky. Yeah. <laughs> it's just really good-natured. Um, yeah, it's... That's a really good description of it, I think, like, the good-naturedness. You know, I, I really... Uh, I remember years ago saying to a friend, you know, I think, you know, Arabian Nights and Decameron are really good ways to introduce young people to a cinema of sex. Mm. Like, I mm. wouldn't have a problem, you know, yeah. kind yeah, of yeah. with, um, you know, some of my nieces and nephews watching those because there's nothing... You know, there's nothing uh, dangerous in those films. Mm. And then, what does he follow that with? With Solo, which is probably, I think, the greatest expression of anger mm. and despair about capitalist society ever put on mm. on film. And you're right, Paul. It's it's the Dissard text mm. that's kind of the. But you know, it, it for me. I mean, I find. Dissard really boring <laughs> after 20 pages you know yeah, it's yeah. masturbatory fantasies and we all have masturbatory fantasies and if we put them down over a thousand pages they would be very boring yeah. I mean I can understand kind of where why he's got a, the significance he has because he you know he was the first to do that mm. uh, to have mm. that written down but what Pasolini does with Solo I think is much more much important more I think yeah it's one that one was one that really really disturbed me for a lot of reasons but the main one was in the context of his films. He came off, as you say, three very sexy films. And this was not about sex at all. It, it Sex was a conduit to violence. Yeah. And it was just, it was a complete reversal of what he'd been doing. But on the surface, you could say, oh, look, it's another film about sex. And it really, really wasn't. And because and it was used as a weapon, it disturbed the hell out of me watching it but god what an experience i also think because solo puts you in you know especially in that uh, uh, amazing final sequence it puts you in the position of being the you know those men it puts you mm. in the position of the voyeur yeah looking mm. you know he, he's doing that very consciously this yeah. is the gaze this is what you're doing this is what you're consuming you're consuming shit you're consuming death yeah, yeah. this is the culture that you think is so important is it wrong to find some of solo kind of funny like in terms of being satirical like I think it's some of it's played. For I think it's yeah. extremely blackly mm. satirical of fascists and making them look very, very silly and very laughable and very like down to the the cross-eyed dude that's you know wearing his ridiculous leather ensemble as he's you yeah. know torturing kids to death. I, um, think, I, I think there is some you know there is something about um, perversity, which is funny. You know, which mm. is kind of both shocking and, and particularly funny the way it's played time. by those guys, yeah. though. Like they're so ridiculously evil, you mm. know, and so kind of callous and but pompous at the same time. There's this pomposity mm. that sort of they feel justifies their ridiculous evil. That's and the pomposity is funny. I'm like, and I was thinking also of the narrators, the women who do the the narrating in the film. I mean, they 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 are so camp and kind of in the stories they tell, and that they they're quite funny. Mm. Um, I see the influence of Pasolini in so much stuff, and I sometimes think maybe it's because he's so important to me, and maybe it's not there. But uh, I remember seeing uh, Todd Salon's first time I saw Happiness, and mm. that really made me re- like. I I, I think. That film owes, and it, 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 the reason I'm thinking about it is because I think the way happiness uses humour is is uh, of an uh, accord with uh, with Salo. Mm. Um, and did you guys see Dogtooth? Yes, the, yeah. the Greek film. I mean, yeah. that's that's Amazing. another mm, version yeah. of theorem in a way, and that that's perversity is really really funny and mm. shocking. Mm. Kinda, 
So I think he's he's actually remains a, a very important influence in something, and I hope it doesn't sound wanky, probably is, I don't care, in something I call the cinema of ideas, mm. which is... Um, which is very important to me still. It's not the only thing I want from cinema, but it is one of the things that made me fall in love with film and um, um, and one of the things that maintains that, that relationship with film, I think, is mm. is that challenge I talked about watching th- Theorem for the first time, having to think, yeah, having yeah. to, you know... Where everything's yeah. not neatly tied up. Yeah, exactly, where you are challenged. It's something you see in his docos a lot as as well. I mean, they're not traditional documentaries. Not all, not <laughs> He's got something to say. <laughs> and even if it's like uh, La Rabia. Yeah, La Rabia. La Rabia. Um, which is kind of just a guy free associating. <laughs> he's just he's just going off and yeah, may, maybe putting clips to follow whatever he thought of in the in the in the sound booth. <laughs> but um it's it's quite entertaining, but it does I mean he does that with you know all of his docos, most of which are made for TV. Mm. I think. Was that the doco that came out posthumously, La Rabia? Yes. Yep. Yes. Notes towards an African. Orestes. Orestes. Yeah. Which I didn't realize as I was watching it because I just you know I just put it on and started watching it. It's the film that he wanted to make and didn't um, about the Greek legend and and these are basically his notes. It's basically like a DVD special feature. Right. Here's, here's the film I was going to make. Wouldn't that guy be great in the role? <laughs> I actually think um, that's a really that's a way to, to look at a lot of the documentary material that Pasolini did is that mm. um, they are notes, they are a, a way of um, him formulating uh, his ideas yeah. of um, well, what is it that I want to do with my feature films? What, mm. what 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 am I thinking about? What are my politics at the moment? Mm. What what do I think of uh, of culture? Um, and again, that's that's where I think it, it was a, quite an amazing time that you could do that, even. When he's the hardest, and I think Hawks and Sparrows is probably his, his hardest feature film, mm-hmm. and some of the some of the documentaries, that excitement's always there for me in Pasolini. I think yeah. that's what I that's what I really you know that's that's part of my love. Yeah, I think Hawk, Hawks and Sparrows best opening title sequence of all time. <laughs> it's basically an operetta singing the opening titles, <laughs> and Excellent. it's just that's oh. right. It's just hilarious. I, I, I love it so much. That's bizarre because I found he's kind of got the Woody Allen thing going. Like most of his opening title sequences are the same. Yeah. They're the same font, the same background, and they all end with the fin. Yeah. So I, I just took that book. as him rating his own film. He went, yeah, fine. Yeah, that was all right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Hawks and Sparrows, uh, it really felt like uh, if Bergman directed a script by Fellini, um, which is, I'm actually entering that into a competition for the most pretentious thing said all year. Um, but seriously, it's, it's, it's weird. And, and he does seem to, uh, like with La Ricotta, it felt really familiar when I was watching it. I was like, why, why does this seem so familiar to me? And then somebody mentions Fellini. I'm like, oh my God, it's a Fellini film. Yeah. That's what, yeah. And he's not shy about sharing his inspirations. But you can... It's interesting to see how they affect his work as he goes on, because he goes through so many different phases, I guess. And he's sort of in this accelerated evolution where he's like, okay, I've done the, my neorealism. What do I want to do next? Surrealism. Okay, I've done that. What am I, you know, and it's just so within such a short period of time, he's gone through so many different styles of film. Well, look, I think that that moment in cinema history, right, you would be, you would be going to the films... And he would be seeing Goddard's work, or he'd be seeing Antonioni's work, mm. he'd be seeing Bergman's work, 
I the influences were there weekly. Yeah, it would mm. have been. So of course they're they're, resp- they're, they're responding to each other. And yeah, yeah. The kind of films are answering back to each other. I think that's why it was such a fruitful period. I think by the time of um, Theorem, it's not that the influences disappear, but I think he's 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 worked out the kind of cinema he wants to make. Yeah, mm. and um, it's absolutely. Uh, and, yeah. and, and for me, Theorem is the f- is probably that moment. But. Yeah, uh, Theorem is so sexual and so freeform and so metaphorical and so um, dreamlike. Mm. Yeah, it's very that's that's very true. It's it it could be all a dream. Yeah, know? and yeah. even that closing sequence where he's he's wandering the desert, what a naked. Yeah, that that Great. feels like. A dream I've had. Yeah, <laughs> what a great ending! Not sure if I could completely work out what it was about, but <laughs> it was a, such a great ending. And it, and it actually established for me that look, Pasolini has this thing from the films I've seen of killer endings. Yeah, like, yeah, that's true. <laughs> man knows how to close a film. Like yeah. between whether it's d- demons farting out friars <laughs> in the Canterbury Tales, <laughs> or whether didn't see that coming. I guess no. <laughs> 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 Nothing in cinema history would prepare you to that conclusion. Mm. To the great ending in Theorem, the man wandering naked through the desert, to the Salo's chronicle of horrors, and mm. um, to just, yeah, just amazing closing scenes. He, he has interesting threads that run through his films. I mean, and, and they include everything from those amazing endings to his feelings about Marxism mm. to uh, like 10 films in a row that feature Ninetto Davoli prancing about to loot music. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, did he lose a bet or what? It I just kept happening. Was, uh, a certain uh, infatuation. <laughs> yes, I think that's safe to say. Uh, I think that's very safe to no, say. No, I get that. It's the loot music I didn't get. <laughs> yeah, but, but I, th- I think someone like Pasolini had a, you know, he was so literate, and not a, I'm not only talking about writing, but you know the Decameron, the the Arabian Nights, uh, uh, Canterbury Tale. So many of those images are from paintings. Mm-hmm. You know, so many of those images, and they're they're from the the you know the beginning of Western uh, representational art, or they're, they're 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 even older, kind of Middle Eastern uh, era uh, work. And I think in his films are all those influences. The not only the the political influences, which in a way you could you know kind of seemed you can say that the most obvious but mm. you know opera's in there uh, yeah. uh, writing is in there uh, uh, Freud is in there all all those things and it's it's imagination I mean he created those endings but they did actually come from someone who was always engaged with the world yeah mm. and, and it just occurred to me before talking about how authentically he tried to adapt classic tales he didn't with uh, a short film that he did as part of an anthology a version of Othello. Yes. Which is just completely... I'm not even sure it's about Othello, but it's, it's like people as marionette puppets mm. performing Othello. And it's it's almost my favourite version, a film version of Othello. It's just brilliant. And it's... I don't know what the motivation was. That's one I really want to find out what he was trying to say with that. The, the way I see that is that he's asking you to think... To forget everything you learnt in high school about Othello. Yeah. To learn about, you know, everything that, you know, middle class theatre tells you about how you should view Othello. And to think about how Othello played to an audience 
right at the beginning of that play, you know, when Shakespeare wrote it, what would it be like to be in that audience? Yeah. And that audience wasn't going to be men in tuxedos and women in tiaras at the MTC. Right. You know, it was going to be this they were really get angry. a den yeah. of really smelly people who'd been working all day and working really hard and there would be lots of lewd jokes and there'd, there'd mm. be a lot of noise. And that's what he's saying. What was that impulse in art before it got overlaid with all these things that he thought were destructive to art. Then I'm wrong, it is actually quite pure. It just looks like it's a crazy <laughs> adaptation. That's really interesting. And so many adaptations of classic texts. Like, I haven't seen Medea or uh, Oedipus Rex. Mm. Uh, we just take some those. You look, yeah, I, I think it's that, that thing about going back and actually saying, is it, is it possible to see him anew? Oedipus, by the time Pasolini was working on Oedipus, post-Freud, it would had become... Everyone knew the story. You know, mm. there were mm. one million psychoanalysts in America who were telling, you know, their patients the, the, the story or it had become really mundane and it had lost its power, I think. Mm. So I think what he's trying to do in Oedipus Rex is say, what would it have been like to have been Oedipus? Mm. To fuck your mother, to kill your father, this to happen to you. What is it about? What, you know, what is still there in our culture? Mm. From from those moments, I, I mean, I think he's just asking you to see it anew, yeah. and to to see it mm. as for the first time. And and one way I think he does that is by stripping it back to, um, I mean, he really, you know, and it's in the documentaries the the, the kind of the the detail of saying, you know, it, as I said, it didn't look like Ben Hur. That wasn't the ancient world. The mm. ancient world was not not our world. We would be shocked to be in the ancient world. Yeah. Mm. And the only I, I I think the only filmmaker. I'm, I'm, I'm going through the filing cabinet in my head, <laughs> but I do think he's the only filmmaker I know who's actually given me that sense of what another universe the past would have been. I love Spartacus. Yeah. You know, I love Kubrick's Spartacus. I think mm. that's a fantastic film. I really enjoy that film, but that doesn't give me the sense that Oedipus yeah. Rex or Medea does. No, absolutely not. Yeah. This is all very. This is all very intellectual because I was going to describe the Canterbury, like, <laughs> going to describe Canterbury Tales as the film in which we see Doctor Who's cock. <laughs> yeah, well, boy, yeah. that was uh, given what I grew up on. That yeah. Was, uh, How was that for you? Was uh, that a confronting moment? Uh, uh, there was a lot of looking away. <laughs> it's like, no, I'm not ready for this. I'm sorry. That's uh, so sorry. playful. Yeah. Like that's what I found. I mean, I haven't seen Arabian Nights or Cameron as yet, but watching oh, man, Ca- Arabian Nights is so wonderfully erotic yeah like really beautiful after watching Mama Roma and and Akatoni and and then um, and Theorem and then Salo after that like watching Canterbury Tales it's like wow this is just so has this lightness of spirit Mm. and this and this playfulness and this really cheeky sense of humour that's really caught me off guard but it was lovely I, I dug the hell out of it and and I assume Decameron and Arabian Nights operate from the same place yeah they do it, it, the temptation with Pasolini is to read Salo as kind of a prophecy of mm. you know of his his death, um, and I think he would have. And this is my speculation. He would have gone in the direction that Goddard went into. I'm not saying he would have made the same kind of uh, uh, films necessarily, but he would have become, you know, he would have become more and more insular. Mm. And I think you got to remember that he didn't witness the end of communism. You know, he didn't mm. witness that that would have been the great monumental change for... He was never, a, you know, he was never a, a traditional communist at all. In fact, the Communist Party uh, hated him for a yeah. period because they, he would not toe the correct line. Mm. 
but I think that's really important for me to uh, when I think about the possibility of Pasolini if he had lived I think he would have become much more insular and I think he would have fled Italy yeah Yeah. it's been an amazing ride and and quite a surprising one Uh, thank you so much for coming on it's been a pleasure uh, man it's been a pleasure for me thank you very much Thanks for coming down to our level. It's really <laughs> hard to sit in, around and talk about film. <laughs> it does suck, doesn't it? <laughs> and we'll see the rest of you next month. Thanks so much, guys. Keep Thanks watching so stuff. Much.